Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. After a few weeks away, we are reunited. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Terry Fakes for another episode of the So We Speak podcast. Well, and Cole, I think uh, a little explanation is in order for uh, what you've been doing uh, these past few weeks, and really a big announcement that I'm mm-hmm. proud of, and I know you are too. Uh, so last week, after a few weeks of intensive preparation, you defended your doctoral dissertation, and mm-hmm. do I now have to call you Dr. Fakes? Yeah, that's one of the big stipulations. <laughs> on the podcast, when we're recording, it has to be doctor. Now, I, I um, was fortunate enough to be able to go to Louisville. You know, uh, For the last couple of years, a lot of doctoral dissertations have been on Zoom, but I was fortunate enough to get to go to Louisville and meet with my committee and defend my dissertation, and that's the capstone of the doctoral program in almost every discipline. Now, some of the hard sciences are a little bit different, but in the humanities, usually follows the same basic layout where you've written, at that point, a book or, you know, in Mm -hmm. the academy, sometimes you call them monographs. But you write a, a monograph and then your committee reads it, and the committee is comprised of people who are in your field or bring an expertise that maybe is from outside of your field but is really helpful on your topic, so my, my topic is in philosophy, but it's really in Pauline theology. And so on my committee, I wanted to make sure I had people that understood New Testament theology, um, mm-hmm. somebody that had an ethical background, is an ethicist. And then my advisor is a philosophy apologetics guy. So you want to, you want to assemble a group of people that have the expertise to evaluate what you've done. And the point of a dissertation is to make a contribution to your field. So it needs to be an original idea, needs to be an original contribution. That doesn't mean that you make up new theology necessarily. That's probably not a good move for a dissertation. (laughs) But it needs to be something that no one has done before, either methodologically or engaging and bringing certain sources together or observing something and applying in a different way. And um, you go before this committee and they basically say, we think this is good or we think this is bad. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of... That's the nervous part of it is what's your committee going to think of your dissertation? Now, usually you've had enough engagement with them before you get there that you have a pretty good idea of what their feedback and pushback are going to be. But it's still kind of a nerve wracking time to go before them and have to present. And uh, I'm very thankful they approved it. And they call it a defense for a reason and not because they're hostile, but because they are probing. Right. Well, and different doctoral committees are different. I think mine was very collegial and friendly and they want you to succeed and there are definitely people I know that have been on committees where the, the professors aren't really sure if they want them to succeed. They really want them to know, uh, you know, that this is kind of the entry into the guild. There's a little hazing right. involved <laughs> with that. But I, I was very pleased that, that uh, my committee gave some very helpful feedback. Uh, we don't agree on every detail, but they really want me to succeed. They want this dissertation to be as best as it could possibly be. Yes, and... Uh, I know you won't tell them this, but I will since I'm your dad, but they uh, passed it with distinction, meaning they were pretty excited about the idea and would like you to pursue having it published in an academic, by an academic publisher. Mm -hmm. So I think the idea was uh, very engaging to them. Yeah. So the process now starts of trying to figure out if you can pitch it to certain publishers and if it's something that would be publishable. We don't know. They think it, they think it would be a good fit, but we'll see as we kind of get into that over the next couple of months. So. Well, just as a matter of education, I imagine a lot of our listeners would have this question, what's involved in a doctoral program? I mean, I know that in various disciplines, you would get like a master's degree, 
then you would uh, get invited into a doctoral program. Uh, you had a Master of Divinity, which mm-hmm. is a more academic degree to get into an academic doctoral program. But w- once you started your doctoral work, what do you actually do? Yeah, that's a good question. So this this is where theology and um, uh, graduate school in ministry or theology, or it used to all be called divinity. Um, that was mm-hmm. a little misleading. Um <laughs> is a little bit different than a lot of other programs. So you graduate from college, you go and you get a master's. And if you want to go get a PhD, you really need to get an MDiv, which is the longer of the seminary degree. So you can get an MA. A lot of people get MAs in New Testament or Old Testament, uh-huh. uh, which are really good degrees, really helpful for ministry and uh, really helpful for thinking. And that, that's usually my first recommendation for people is if you want to go to seminary, get an MA and specialize in an area to help you teach better, help you study the Bible better. But if you do want to go on, you get the MDiv, which is kind of the gold standard, longer degree program. Um, it's three or four years long, has original language requirements, mm-hmm. but it also has some pastoral classes. I mean, it is the degree that was that was geared to prepare people for church ministry, mm-hmm. both academically and vocationally. So once you get an MDiv, then you can apply for a PhD program. And most PhD programs, uh, especially if you're going to go to Europe, for example, and get a PhD, you have to do another master's when you get there. And places like Duke and the Ivy Leagues are this way. And Southern is this way, too, if you come in with certain MDivs. So mm-hmm. depending on what how they assess your MDiv and how it fits with their vision of what they want you to know, some some people have to go get a THM, which is a Master's of Theology, which is about a year and a half of writing, developing your thoughts. If you need to take kind of prerequisite classes, you would take them there. Um, and so you come into a PhD program and you either start that or you start the PhD classes. And those are fairly similar in some ways. Mm-hmm. But I went in and, and did seminars, which is what they call your classes in PhD life, because you wouldn't want to call them classes anymore. <laughs> Can't charge as much. Right. You call them seminars, which you meet either once a week or, you know, in my case, we did a modular program. So you go up for two weeks at the end of the semester with your cohort of people. And anyway, you do a lot of reading, a lot of writing, and um, a lot of discussing. And as you move through, so the coursework is about two years long, and you have to take eight seminars that are related to your field. Then you've got to take comprehensive exams and language requirements. And honestly, I think a lot of people think that that's the hardest part of the PhD program is these comprehensive exams. So they can test you on anything in your field. They're like three quarters of a day long essays. Then you have to take certain tests depending on what your area is. So if you're a New Testament guy, usually you're taking a Greek test. Um, And usually it's not the New Testament, which is really tricky. So (laughs) most people coming through a PhD program in Greek have a very good grasp of the New Testament. And then they throw in, you know, Philo or something on your Greek right. exam, and it, it, those are really difficult. So once you do that, you meet with your advisor and you do what's called a guided mentorship or a guided study, where you're developing your prospectus. Prospectus is about a fifty-page version of what your dissertation is going to be. So mm-hmm. it's thesis, history of research, outline of your, you know, planned path, which is almost never the path you really go down, but right. your planned path of completion, and then. They launch you off into the writing phase. Now, the British and the Europeans do this really differently. They start writing the dissertation when they get there, and all their seminars are basically independent studies. So your advisor is guiding, okay, well, if you're going to write this dissertation, you're going to need these three courses. So enroll in this one. You and I will discuss this one. A little more customized. Yeah, it's it's very much to prepare for the dissertation, whereas in, in the American model, or especially at seminaries, it's much more, let's give you a baseline in these seminars in your field. 
and then you'll specialize in the dissertation. Two great ways to do it. They both have pros and cons, but in Europe, you're going to get a different track. But here you get with your advisor, you get your prospectus approved, and then they're kind of like, see at the dissertation. Um, <laughs> so you write and send is this chapters. the 40 years in the desert part? This is the wilderness part of the dissertation. And you are sending chapters to your advisor. A lot of times you'll send chapters to other people that either have an expertise or another set of eyes or somebody that you know is familiar with your topic so that you can get some good feedback. And then basically once you're done and your advisor thinks you're ready, then you apply for your defense. So usually your committee is the same committee that reviews your prospectus. That was my, that was the case in mine. So these guys had heard my idea. They, you know, have had thought about it at least once in the, in the prospectus defense and it had given me some good guidance on how to go about writing the full dissertation. So then when you get the full thing done, you apply and you go to the defense and basically they want to see not just is the writing good, but can you defend it? You know, do you have good ideas on paper, but can you defend them orally? And if you don't, you know, if they have something they disagree with, can you prove to us that you thought about this? Mm-hmm. You know, you have to be the expert in the area now. And uh, my defense was not very combative, which was nice. I, I kind of thought it would be more combative, a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, a, it was a good discussion. It was about an hour and a half long. Then they send you out of the room and they say they're going to evaluate and then they call you back in and Hopefully you get the right hand of fellowship and you get, you get to pass. Uh, one final question on this. It's a curiosity question. So in your MDiv, you learn Greek and Hebrew, mm-hmm. but in your doctoral program, you also have language requirements. What languages did you I did do? German and Latin. So in your PhD, you usually have to, you have to pass two language requirement exams and they're reading exams. So you don't have to be fluent. I can't speak any German, but... You have to show that if you had an article that hasn't been translated, could you make your way through it as a primary source? And so you have to test out of both of those. And so that for uh, for a lot of people, that also is one of the more difficult parts of the dissertation. Because right. sometimes it doesn't seem like it has a lot to do with your right. dissertation or your area of study. But the area of study determines what languages. So, for example, some people, um, if they're doing uh, an auth, if they're writing on somebody that it, that has English as a second language, whatever their original tongue is, you're going to have as a research language. So you can read it in the original. Some of the guys that do analytic philosophy or analytic theology, one of their research languages is symbolic logic, which we don't think of as a language necessarily, but it's a skill that you're going to need to actually do this dissertation. So some guys will have to take that as well. Um, I haven't heard of this at Southern, but I know of a guy that I did my MDiv with that was doing kind of a computer science-y version of a dissertation. And so he had several programming language that he had to demonstrate proficiency in. So it, it, it is kind of geared towards what you're going to need. But I would say most people don't need both of their languages. Right. Well, kind of moving on from that, I know uh, that your general topic of your dissertation was on virtue epistemology in Paul. And so I presume you're an expert on that. But one thing I know for sure, you are an expert on college in general, having uh, spent a lot of time in it. All joking aside, one of the things I I thought would be good to get into in this is we have a lot of people in college or in seminary listening to us. Looking back, what advice would you have for people in college and or in seminary? Any Mm -hmm. tips? Well, uh, that's one of the things I do appreciate about our audience is we do have a lot of seminary students that listen to the podcast. And um, I'm very thankful that you guys listen, and I'm very thankful that you're doing what you're doing in seminary because 
Seminary is really tough, and and any grad school, MBA or you know Master of Fine Arts or whatever your your grad school is in, it, it is tough. Seminary, I think, is uniquely tough because the blend of learning and doing is difficult in seminary. Mm-hmm. My my advice is always that um, first of all, my advice is always that you should go to seminary if you can. And mm-hmm. a lot of people can't, and it doesn't fit with what they want to do in the church necessarily. And that, mm-hmm. That's fine. But if you want to teach and preach, or if you want to go be a senior pastor, or uh, if you want to be in an area where you're doing a lot of uh, engagement, it didn't used to be this way, but now there is so much accessibility for online classes taught by top-notch professors that, mm-hmm. like I said, you don't have to go get an MDiv, but if you can do an MA, if you can just get on, and a lot of seminaries will allow you to online audit a class for maybe 20 bucks, mm-hmm. and you know, take a course from somebody who's an expert on a couple of topics. It really just builds that foundation. But beyond that, my advice is never to do seminary just by itself. I, I think that that's one of the reasons that seminarians get a bad rap. It's like first semester philosophy students in college. They <laughs> get a bad rap because you have one semester of philosophy and it makes you think you know everything. That's the same way with seminary. I had a seminary professor give me some great advice. Never teach what you're learning in seminary unless you until you have a semester's distance between you right. and that subject. Because seminary and college and all education is not just about downloading and understanding facts. It's about becoming a certain kind of person, a certain right. kind of thinker. And that requires a lot of synthesis. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'll make a couple of recommendations. My first one is, as you're going to seminary, work at or volunteer in a church where you're actually doing ministry. Don't just go be an assistant somewhere where you're doing kind of mindless tasks. Teach children's Sunday school or volunteer to lead a small group in the youth group or be uh-huh. a youth pastor or you know, get involved somewhere where you're actually keeping your feet on the ground at all times with real people who don't give a rip about what you're studying in seminary, right. but need you to be a faithful pastoral presence in their life. That is really important. That's it will put great advice. a context around everything you're learning. The second thing I would say is there is a, a real phenomenon. This happens in college some, uh, but it definitely happens in seminary where people will go to sem- seminary and they will radically change their beliefs. And some of them will leave the faith. Um, a lot of what you see happening is people will leave evangelicalism for something else. Either mm. they become Eastern Orthodox or they become Catholic. And that, that's not always a bad thing. Um, you know, I think there are moments where people, you know, just realize that, you know, what they, what they believed was wrong or they think, oh, I, you know, I think this is correct and they move towards it. Mm-hmm. But what I do worry about is the people that do that because of disillusionment, which is really common in seminary. Mm. So what happens is you go to seminary and then all of a sudden you start learning things about approaching the Bible academically and it doesn't square with what you learned at vacation Bible school and right. the way you read the Bible. And, you know, if you combine that with a little bit of arrogance, you can really twist off into disillusionment. I don't know if I believe what I believe anymore. I don't think the archaeology backs it up anymore. You have a seminary professor that's just hell bent on, you know, taking you away from right. what he considers fundamentalist beliefs or, you know, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden you put all that in the cooker together and, uh-huh. it's, and it can lead to confusion and disbelief and uh, drift. And so I would say give yourself a little bit of grace in seminary. You are going to be broken down, especially the first year or two, because you're encountering what's happening in seminary ideally is a paradigm shift. And paradigm shifts happen because you're overloaded with information that you can't synthesize. And so you be, 
you begin to take apart your beliefs. Right. And the closer they get to your core, your core beliefs, your identity beliefs, further away from just your intellectual assent kind of beliefs, right. the more opportunity there is that you will get discouraged and disillusioned. So I would say give yourself a little bit of, of grace because you're going to go through a period of time where you are unsure about things you used to be sure about. Mm-hmm. The goal would be that your new paradigm would actually be a bigger and broader and more robust synthesis of the things that you did believe and the things that are true. So I think almost everybody goes through a phase in seminary, depending on where you go, where you are kind of unsure about what you think about scripture, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. The goal would be at the end of seminary that you would have a much more solid trust in the authority and inspiration of the Bible. But to get there, you have to add a lot of new things to your paradigm, which means you've got to break down the old paradigm to build the new paradigm. Right. And it's the period of time when you're breaking down the old paradigm that you feel very naked in terms of what you believe. Right. And that could be a very scary time. But I would say give yourself some grace, push through, find some good mentors, and don't make any huge life doctrinal decisions between years one and two in seminary. So right. I, I'd like to hear your perspective on that because that's not just true in seminary. That's true for anybody that's undertaking a lot of growth and investigation and reading and knowledge. You can encounter scholars and sources that you don't really know what to do. You know you know, you don't believe what they believe, but you can't argue against it. And right. that could be kind of disorienting. Yeah. I, yeah, I feel the same way about that in general is I think... You know how the the old advice is don't make a big decision when you're tired, when you're angry, mm-hmm. you know, those kinds of things. You know, give it some time. You'll make a better judgment. I, I would apply that to the learning process. There is a sense in which you are on a learning curve and you have not yet integrated new knowledge right. into your core beliefs. And sometimes it can be deconstructing, mm-hmm. which, by the way... We will have a future podcast on the whole idea of deconstructing your faith. Mm-hmm. Great suggestion from a couple of our listeners. But back to this, is it's that's not the time. Give yourself, like you said, a little grace. Put a date on the calendar if you want and say, two years from now or a year from now, when I'm done, then I'm going to think this through. Right. I think that's really wise because I don't think you make good decisions in the middle of a learning curve. And I don't think you make good decisions uh, when you're... Kind of, you're not tearing everything down, but in order to build a more sophisticated structure, sometimes you have to remodel the old one and mm-hmm. wait till you're done. Yeah. I think that's very wise, Cole. Yeah. I think the other thing I would say is focus as much as you can on primary sources. This is something that in different programs is easier to do than others. Um, you can tell intellectually people that have a knowledge of something because they've read secondary sources on it. They've read somebody commenting. So by primary sources, I mean the person who's making the original case. So we would think of things like, you know, obviously scripture is a primary source, but certain theologians or certain projects. So if you're reading the church fathers, for example, secondary sources are people who are talking about those things. So maybe a summary or somebody building off of them and Ideally, nobody has enough time to do this, but ideally you would read a lot of primary source material and then move on to secondary source material once you're able to grasp the sources that the person you're reading has grasped. Because in order to really evaluate something, you see this in book reviews, for example, in order to really be able to evaluate something, you need to know what the person is talking about on your own, and Mm -hmm. then you can tell if what they're saying about it is right or wrong. But too often what happens in seminary is you read a bunch of secondary literature, either about scripture, because you haven't done the exegesis, you haven't studied these texts, or 
about theology or about the creeds or whatever, and you actually don't have an independent leg to stand on. You right. wouldn't know if they're making sense or not of these primary sources because you haven't read them. Right. And so I would say um, it's going it's, it, it's gonna to hone your mind and your ministry a lot better in the long run if you're familiar with the primary sources. So go back to, they're harder to read and they take longer, but go back and read the fundamental big works. Then read you know, your summaries and your commentary and all of that stuff. I would say, especially with the text of scripture, do not dive into, you know, biblical theology and, and commentaries if you're not willing to do the textual work to know if they're making sense of this text or if they're bringing something else in or if they're not doing it. And again, in seminary, usually you're learning the original languages. And so you want to do some original language work before you jump into a mm-hmm. lot of these secondary works. But some seminary programs will kind of force you to not do that because of what they assign. But I would say it's always worth going and doing the original primary source work first, then moving on to secondary literature after that. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the uh, other groups of our audience, maybe even a little bit bigger, are people who aren't going to go to seminary, but are going to be small group leaders and teachers. And I'm pretty passionate about this, and I know you are too, despite having a lot of uh, formal training, how would you, what advice, let's kick around a little bit, maybe some helpful thoughts for if you're going to learn on your own, you're not going to go mm-hmm. get a master of divinity, you're not going to get a master's of theology, mm-hmm. but you are going to contribute. And that's, yeah. that's completely valid. It's, you're going to be a teacher, Sunday school teacher, whatever. What are some thoughts you have on how might you, good ways, bad ways, how might you go about learning on your own? That's right. What it is. Yeah, this is 98% or 99% of yeah. the church. So I think this is something that we should spend more time broadly as a church thinking about. Is seminary is great, but at the end of the day, most people will never think about going to seminary or taking any classes. Right. And I would say, like, like I mentioned earlier, even if you're just a, a leader who's just wanting to grow and learn a little bit, there are so many opportunities now to take courses. Right. And by that, I mean watch lectures or read, um, you know, teaching material from experts. And I do think that's valuable. So, you know, if you're a, if you're a Sunday school teacher, for example, and and you're going to teach really textual focused lessons and really have great discussion, I would suggest finding one class to audit a year, maybe, you know, take an eight week where you watch two lectures per week. You're not writing essays, you're not turning stuff in, but you're able to watch those, take notes and then have that to refer to when you teach a lesson later. I think that's that's really helpful. So go to, you know, either Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary does this really well, or Southeastern does this well, and a lot of other places do this really well. Dallas Theological Seminary has several of these courses online. RTS has a lot of courses online. And just make a goal once a year. Oh, you know, I'm, 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 I would love to get to know Romans better. So I'm going to go get on what whoever's website I'm going to you know pay 20 bucks to audit this course and I'm going to watch all the videos and take notes mm-hmm. that's a great way to learn and it's easier than reading you know Doug Moo's Romans commentary cover to cover right so I would say scripturally that's a great way to use the the wealth of a seminary when you're not going to seminary right. is just take that course get and some of them are just free you know, some of them you don't have to audit them you can just watch the videos for free mm-hmm. um, the gospel coalition actually has a whole section of their site that's devoted to free seminary courses that you can watch and take on a lot of different topics. So Greg Beal has one on biblical theology that I would recommend anybody oh, take. Yeah. Now it's kind of dense. I mean, they're like hour and a half lectures. So maybe listen to 
part of it. This is what I've done with some of these lectures is you listen to part of it and then you come back to it. And, you know, th there's different ways that you can work that kind of material into your schedule because you're not just going to sit there on an afternoon and listen to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But I would take advantage of that. I think that's a helpful way to grow. Now, <clears throat> the other thing is I think one of the hardest things if you're not being led by somebody in a class setting is figuring out what to read. You know, what is a good resource? What is not a good resource? You don't know the lay of the land. So you're like, how am I supposed to distinguish between this book and that book? Exactly. What's your advice on that? Well, I, I have strong opinions about this. I think what you just said about having teachers in certain areas is a great idea. When it comes to developing your knowledge, I think it's important, if you can, to have a guide. Mm -hmm. Not so much a teacher, but a guide. Someone who has read widely and who can uh, curate the knowledge and say, if, if I were you to develop your knowledge of the Bible, I would read these five books in order. And maybe we'll yeah. talk about it a little. Or if you want to learn how to teach, you know, I would mm -hmm. study under this person or I would read these books or here's some great books on preaching. It can save you so much time. I remember when I was reading uh, back in the dark ages and I really, uh, living in a secular world, didn't have a coach. And so, but I did read widely and I have formed opinions about that. And so have a lot of other people that have mm -hmm. read a lot of books and can say, look, you can spend a lot of time, but I'll tell you some books that have stood the test of time that you can trust the theology in them. I think that's invaluable to have a guide who will uh, curate some of that knowledge mm -hmm. for you. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, th I think we are underdependent at this point on coaches and guides yeah. and people that can speak into and sort through a lot of material. Uh, because I think if you really want to learn, stay away from the pop theology books. I mean, the, the Christian bestseller books are really good for devotional type things. They're really good for different stories and things like that. But you know, the publishing industry as a whole, and this is kind of a cynical take here, but the publishing industry as a whole survives on publishing new stuff all the time. Right. When you really want to grow in your knowledge, you don't need the newest, latest, greatest thing. What you need is the book that thousands and thousands of people have read and found helpful over and over and over again. It's in its 12th right. printing. And, you know, there's a lot of, of wisdom there that stood the test of time. It's bigger than the first moment that it comes out. Now, I mean, every book was a new release at some point, so I'm right. not saying new releases are bad, but try to find people that um, have read through, like you said, and try to find books that are cornerstones, that mm -hmm. have stood the test of time, and that uh, a lot of people have benefited from for a long time. Those are going to be ones that make the biggest impact. So, for right. example, I was linking this week to a review of Knowing God by Kevin Van Hooser in the Weekly Speak on Monday, and... Knowing God is one of those books that's probably sold millions of copies. I mean, it's been around for 40 years now or 50 years now. It's been through different printings, and lots of people have read it. It's not an academic book, but it's really solid. Mm -hmm. And one of the things Van Hooser was saying, of course, Kevin Van Hooser is kind of a world-class theologian in his own right, mm -hmm. and he's recommending that you read this book by J.I. Packer. To me, that's a serious endorsement. Right. This book has been around for a while. People love it from... Church people that have no training to the highest academic pedigree in the mm -hmm. world, that's that's one to read. Yeah, so look for things like that. And and having certain guides or listening to very trusted voices can lead you down that path. Well, I'm going to add one thing, but let me summarize. So I love your idea that now that you can 
access seminary courses for free or very inexpensively online. That's one of the great things about being online. Take Mm -hmm. advantage of it if you can. And another would be get a guide in some way, a coach who could give you access to some curated books. What are some books that are really good in certain areas? The third thing, just from my perspective, is pursue your areas of interest. You know, for me, and again, this is just my story, I'm very interested in history. I was just personally interested in archaeology, uh, like politics, like, you know, a number of things is, well, then follow that. Mm-hmm. Now, God may or may not use every detail of all those things, but it's amazing how many of your interests God can bend to usefulness in the study of the Word. So mm-hmm. in addition to studying that, also just pursue your areas of interest and be a be a reader mm-hmm. in your areas of interest. I think yeah. God, uh, He doesn't strand that knowledge very often. Well, I think this is one of the reasons why your Wednesday night class is so valuable and so popular. I mean, it's... It is a source of wisdom. It, you can apply it to your life. You can grow you know, as a Christian by going to that class. The other thing that happens, though, is you are learning a lot. So in your classes, because they're teaching-oriented, they're historically informed, they're textually based, you're bringing in a large bibliography of things into your lessons. People soak that up, and over the course of six months, a year, five years, you learn a ton by sitting in a class like that. So there are a lot of teachers who can motivate you and uh-huh. um, they can help you apply things, but certainly you need to search out people like like you who can really help you learn through their teaching, and that's a real gift. Um, but again, that's not a seminary class, but that's a kind of class that's going to help you learn. So look for right. teachers like that. I think your class has been so popular and so impactful because of that. So I would say, you know, listen to your class, especially the series that you're doing Mm -hmm. right now. If you want to learn about contemporary events and how the Bible talks about different things, of course, now you've moved on to the Gospels. Um, That would be a great way to know, uh, here's some things I should engage with. Here's some sources that are trusted. Here's some lessons that help me learn. So that's that's another great way to grow. Well, I do think uh, most people that are called to teach have, don't be afraid to pursue your interests, whatever they are because you're going to bring a different flavor, not a different interpretation of the scripture, of course, but you bring a different flavor and background to it. Well, one final question on this that I think is also into the online world, very popular, very useful, but listening to sermons Mm -hmm. and listening to podcasts, Mm -hmm. what are some do's, don'ts, warnings, encouragements in that whole field as for teachers and small group leaders? What are some tips there? I'll just give one and kick it back to you. I think the key here is listening to multiple people. Right. Whoever you immediately gravitate to, maybe you listen to them every week and that is great, but make sure you supplement it with other people. You don't want to become a devotee of one teacher to the detriment of not really getting a well-rounded view of something. So obviously my first advice would be listen to your preacher at the church that you go to. Right. Um, and then if you add on podcasts, sermons, just listen to multiple styles, multiple people. You don't have to love all of them all the time, but branch out, find something new, listen to. A good thing to do is look for sermons on a certain text, for example. And if you're studying in your quiet time, you're in the book of Ephesians, maybe just Google search, Mm -hmm. you know, or go to a website that has kind of a compendium of these because you can find a lot of wacky preaching online. But, um, Pick three sermons on Ephesians in, in a certain chapter, and they'll, they'll all be different. They'll all apply things differently. They'll preach differently, and that is really helpful. So I would say multiply the people that you listen to. 
I think that's really wise is, you know, and I would add one thing and I'll be cynical for just a minute. And I don't mean this to be cynical, but just because someone has a podcast or preaches a sermon or writes a book, that doesn't mean it's true. Yes. You need to engage your critical faculties. And again, I'm not trying to be cynical. I'm just saying, let's not be, as teachers, we have an obligation to be very discerning about those things. And so that's why your own study of the Word is so important. Everything you hear, read, needs to be brought back and set up against the Word of God. But I also think hearing different people is good for us, different styles. Mm -hmm. Not so much that you need to listen to someone who totally disagrees with you. That's good to do occasionally, but I wouldn't start there. I would listen to different voices, though. Mm -hmm. So you don't become just a mimic of one style. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. But so summarizing this up, if I can, is it sounds like our advice for self-learning, if you will, would be take advantage of all the resources that we now have online, whether that's seminary courses or it's uh, commentaries that you no longer have to purchase because there are so many free online, uh, whether it's podcasts or sermons. In other words, the, the Internet has so many resources. Now, you have to be discerning, but the access is there. And then secondly, human resources. Mm -hmm. Find a guide. Find somebody. Ask questions of people. What have you read that's good? Someone that you respect who's been down the road who can say, you know, I've read a lot of things and these two things stood out to be most helpful. Mm -hmm. So the online resources and the human resources. So Mm -hmm. let me kick it back to you for any final words, Dr. Fakes. Would you add anything to that? I I would just add that sometimes we think that knowledge is um, an esoteric scholarly pursuit but I, we were in our men's Bible study in Carlton Landing a couple weeks ago, and we're in Second Peter where it says, "An add to your faith knowledge. Knowledge is something that can build up your faith. You're not just getting your head bigger. You are expanding your heart, your love for God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And uh, when you get those things all in line, that's how you really grow. Amen. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.